Section 20 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 2, by James Boswell. Section 20. 1776, age 67. In 1776, Johnson wrote, so far as I can discover, nothing for the public, but that his mind was still ardent, and fraught with generous wishes to attain to still higher degrees of literary excellence, is proved by his private notes of this year, which I shall insert in their proper place. To James Boswell, Esquire. Dear Sir, I have at last sent you all Lord Hales's papers. While I was in France, I looked very often into Hainaut, but Lord Hales, in my opinion, leaves him far and far behind, why I did not dispatch so short a perusal sooner, when I look back, I am utterly unable to discover. But human moments are stolen away by a thousand petty impediments which leave no trace behind them. I have been afflicted, through the whole Christmas, with the general disorder of which the worst effect was a cough, which is now much mitigated, though the country, on which I look from a window at Streatham, is now covered with a deep snow. Mrs. Williams is very ill. Everybody else is as usual. Among the papers I found a letter to you, which I think you had not opened, and a paper for the Chronicle, which I suppose it not necessary now to insert. I return them both. I have, within these few days, had the honour of receiving Lord Hales's first volume, for which I return my most respectful thanks. I wish you, my dearest friend, and your haughty lady, for I know she does not love me, and the young ladies, and the young lord, all happiness." Teach the young gentleman, in spite of his mamma, to think and speak well of, Sir, your affectionate humble servant, Sam Johnson. January 10, 1776 At this time was in agitation a matter of great consequence to me and my family, which I should not obtrude upon the world, were it not that the part which Dr. Johnson's friendship for me made him take in it was the occasion of an exertion of his abilities which it would be injustice to conceal that what he wrote upon the subject may be understood, it is necessary to give a state of the question, which I shall do as briefly as I can. In the year 1504, the barony or manor of Affleck in Ayrshire, which belonged to a family of the same name, with the lands having fallen to the crown by forfeiture, James IV, King of Scotland, granted it to Thomas Boswell, a branch of an ancient family in the county of Fife, styling him in the charter, Delecto familiari nostro, and assigning, as the cause of the grant, pro bono et fideli servitio nobis prestito. Thomas Boswell was slain in battle, fighting along with his sovereign, at the fatal field of Flodden, in 1513. From this very honourable founder of our family, the estate was transmitted, in a direct series of heirs male, to David Boswell, my father's great-granduncle, who had no sons but four daughters, who were all respectably married, the eldest to Lord Cathcart. David Boswell, being resolute in the military feudal principle of continuing the male succession, passed by his daughters and settled the estate on his nephew by his next brother, who approved of the deed, and renounced any pretensions which he might possibly have in preference to his son. But the estate having been burdened with large portions to the daughters and other debts, it was necessary for the nephew to sell a considerable part of it, 
and what remained was still much encumbered. The frugality of the nephew preserved, and in some degree relieved the estate. His son, my grandfather, an eminent lawyer, not only repurchased a great part of what had been sold, but acquired other lands, and my father, who was one of the judges of Scotland, and had added considerably to the estate, now signified his inclination to take the privilege allowed by our law to secure it to his family in perpetuity by an entail which, on account of his marriage articles, could not be done without my consent. In the plan of entailing the estate I heartily concurred with him, though I was the first to be restrained by it. But we unhappily differed as to the series of heirs which should be established, or in the language of our law, called to the succession. My father had declared a predilection for heirs general, that is, males and females indiscriminately. He was willing, however, that all males descending from his grandfather should be preferred to females, but would not extend that privilege to males deriving their descent from a higher source. I, on the other hand, had a zealous partiality for heirs male, however remote, which I maintained by arguments which appeared to me to have considerable weight. And in the particular case of our family, I apprehended that we were under an implied obligation, in honour and good faith, to transmit the estate by the same tenure which we held it, which was as heirs male, excluding nearer females. I therefore, as I thought conscientiously, objected to my father's scheme. My opposition was very displeasing to my father, who was entitled to great respect and deference, and I had reason to apprehend disagreeable consequences from my non-compliance with his wishes. After much perplexity and uneasiness, I wrote to Dr. Johnson, stating the case, with all its difficulties, at full length, and earnestly requesting that he would consider it at leisure, and favour me with his friendly opinion and advice. To James Boswell, Esquire. Dear Sir, I was much impressed by your letter, and if I can form upon your case any resolution satisfactory to myself, will very gladly impart it. But whether I am quite equal to it I do not know. It is a case compounded of law and justice, and requires a mind versed in juridical disquisitions. Could not you tell your whole mind to Lord Hales? He is, you know, both a Christian and a lawyer. I suppose he is above partiality and above loquacity, and, I believe, he will not think the time lost in which he may quiet a disturbed or settle a wavering mind. Write to me as anything occurs to you, and if I find myself stopped by want of facts necessary to be known, I will make inquiries of you as my doubts arise. If your former resolutions should be found only fanciful, you decide rightly in judging that your father's fancies may claim the preference. But whether they are fanciful or rational is the question. I really think Lord Hales could help us. Make my compliments to dear Mrs. Boswell, and tell her that I hope to be wanting in nothing that I can contribute to bring you all out of your troubles. I am, dear sir, most affectionately, your humble servant, Sam Johnson, London, January 15, 1776. To the same. Dear sir, I am going to write upon a question which requires more knowledge of local law and more acquaintance with the general rules of inheritance than I can claim, but I write because you request it. Land is, like any other possession, by natural right wholly in the power of its present owner, and may be sold, given, or bequeathed, absolutely or conditionally, as judgment shall direct, or passion incite. But natural right would avail little without the protection of law, and the primary notion of law is restrained in the exercise of natural right. 
a man is therefore in society not fully master of what he calls his own but he still retains all the power which law does not take from him in the exercise of the right which law either leaves or gives regard is to be paid to moral obligations of the estate which we are now considering your father still retains such possession with such power over it that he can sell it and do with the money what he will without any legal impediment but when he extends his power beyond his own life by settling the order of succession the law makes your consent necessary let us suppose that he sells the land to risk the money in some specious adventure and in that adventure loses the whole his posterity would be disappointed but they could not think themselves injured or robbed if he spent it upon vice or pleasure his successors could only call him vicious and voluptuous they could not say that he was injurious or unjust he that may do more may do less he that by selling or squandering may disinherit a whole family may certainly disinherit part by a partial settlement laws are formed by the manners and exigencies of particular times and it is but accidental that they last longer than their causes the limitation of feudal succession to the male arose from the obligation of the tenant to attend his chief in war as times and opinions are always changing i know not whether it be not usurpation to prescribe rules to posterity by presuming to judge of what we cannot know and i know not whether i fully approve either your design or your father's to limit that succession which descended to you unlimited if we are to leave sartum tectum to posterity what we have without any merit of our own received from our ancestors should not choice and free will be kept unviolated is land to be treated with more reverence than liberty if this consideration should restrain your father from disinheriting some of the males does it leave you the power of disinheriting all the females can the possessor of a feudal estate make any will can he appoint out of the inheritance any portions to his daughters there seems to be a very shadowy difference between the power of leaving land and of leaving money to be raised from land between leaving an estate to females and leaving the male heir in effect only their steward suppose at one time a law that allowed only males to inherit and during the continuance of this law many estates to have descended passing by the females to remoter heirs suppose afterwards the law repealed in correspondence with the change of manners and women made capable of inheritance would not then the tenure of estates be changed could the women have no benefit from a law made in their favour must they be passed by upon moral principles for ever because they were once excluded by a legal prohibition or may that which passed only to males by one law passed likewise to females by another you mention your resolution to maintain the right of your brothers i do not see how any of their rights are invaded as your whole difficulty arises from the act of your ancestor who diverted the succession from the females you inquire very properly what were his motives and what was his intention for you certainly are not bound by his act more than he intended to bind you nor hold your land on harder or stricter terms than those on which it was granted intentions must be gathered from acts when he left the estate to his nephew by excluding his daughters was it or was it not in his power to have perpetuated the succession to the males if he could have done it he seems to have shown by omitting it that he did not desire it to be done and upon your own principles 
you will not easily prove your right to destroy that capacity of succession which your ancestors have left. If your ancestor had not the power of making a perpetual settlement, and if, therefore, we cannot judge distinctly of his intentions, yet his act can only be considered as an example, it makes not an obligation. And, as you observe, he set no example of rigorous adherence to the line of succession. He that overlooked a brother would not wonder that little regard is shown to remote relations. As the rules of succession are, in a great part, purely legal, no man can be supposed to bequeath anything but upon legal terms. He can grant no power which the law denies, and if he makes no special and definite limitation, he confers all the power which the law allows. Your ancestor, for some reason, disinherited his daughters, but it no more follows that he intended this act as a rule for posterity than the disinheriting of his brother. If, therefore, you ask by what right your father admits daughters to inheritance, ask yourself first by what right you require them to be excluded. It appears, upon reflection, that your father excludes nobody. He only admits nearer females to inherit before males more remote, and the exclusion is purely consequential. These, dear sir, are my thoughts, immethodical and deliberative, but perhaps you may find in them some glimmering of evidence. I cannot, however, but again recommend to you a conference with Lord Hales, whom you know to be both a lawyer and a Christian. Make my compliments to Mrs. Boswell, though she does not love me. I am, sir, your affectionate servant, Sam Johnson, February 3rd, 1773. I had followed his recommendation and consulted Lord Hales, who upon this subject had a firm opinion contrary to mine. His lordship obligingly took the trouble to write me a letter, in which he discussed with legal and historical learning the points in which I saw much difficulty, maintaining that, quote, the succession of heirs-general was the succession by the law of Scotland from the throne to the cottage, as far as we can learn it by record, end quote observing that the estate of our family had not been limited to heirs male, and that, though an heir male had in one instance been chosen in preference to nearer females, that had been an arbitrary act, which had seemed to be best in the embarrassed state of affairs at that time, and the fact was that, upon a fair computation of the value of land and money at the time applied to the estate and the burdens upon it, there was nothing given to the heir male but the skeleton of an estate. Quote, the plea of conscience, said his lordship, which you put, is a most respectable one, especially when conscience and self are on different sides. But I think that conscience is not well informed, and that self and she ought on this occasion to be of a side. This letter, which had considerable influence upon my mind, I sent to Dr. Johnson, begging to hear from him again upon this interesting question. To James Boswell, Esquire. Dear Sir, Having not any acquaintance with the laws or customs of Scotland, I endeavoured to consider your question upon general principles, and found nothing of much validity that I could oppose to this position. Quote, he who inherits a fief, unlimited by his ancestors, inherits the power of limiting it according to his own judgment or opinion. End quote. If this be true, you may join with your father. Further consideration produces another conclusion. Quote, he who receives a fief unlimited by his ancestors gives his heirs some reason to complain if he does not transmit it unlimited to posterity. For why should he make the state of others worse than his own without a reason? 
if this be true though neither you nor your father are about to do what is quite right but as your father violates i think the legal succession least he seems to be nearer the right than yourself it cannot but occur that quote, women have natural and equitable claims as well as men and these claims are not to be capriciously or lightly superseded or infringed end quote. When fiefs implied military service, it is easily discerned why females could not inherit them, but that reason is now at an end. As manners make laws, manners likewise repeal them. These are the general conclusions which I have attained. None of them are very favourable to your scheme of entail, nor perhaps to any scheme. My observation that only he who acquires an estate may bequeath it capriciously. If it contains any conviction, includes this position likewise, that only he who acquires an estate may entail it capriciously. But I think it may be safely presumed that, quote, he who inherits an estate inherits all the power legally concomitant, end quote, and that, quote, he who gives or leaves unlimited an estate legally limitable must be presumed to give that power of limitation which he omitted to take away, and to commit further contingencies to future prudence. In these two positions, I believe Lord Hales will advise you to rest. Every other notion of possession seems to me full of difficulties and embarrassed with scruples. If these axioms be allowed, you have arrived now at full liberty without the help of particular circumstances, which, however, have in your case great weight. You very rightly observe that he who passing by his brother gave the inheritance to his nephew could limit no more than he gave, and by Lord Hales's estimate of fourteen years' purchase, what he gave was no more than you may easily entail, according to your own opinion, if that opinion should finally prevail. Lord Hales's suspicion that entails are encroachments on the dominion of Providence may be extended to all hereditary privileges and all permanent institutions. I do not see why it may not be extended to any provision for the present hour, since all care about futurity proceeds upon a supposition that we know at least in some degree what will be future. Of the future we certainly know nothing, but we may form conjectures from the past, and the power of forming conjectures includes, in my opinion, the duty of acting in conformity to that probability which we discover. Providence gives the power of which reason teaches the use. I am, dear sir, your most faithful servant, Sam Johnson. February ninth, 1776 I hope I shall get some ground now with Mrs. Boswell, make my compliments to her and to the little people. Don't burn papers, they may be safe enough in your own box, you will wish to see them hereafter. To the same, dear sir, to the letters which I have written about your great question I have nothing to add. If your conscience is satisfied, you have now only your prudence to consult. I long for a letter that I may know how this troublesome and vexatious question is at last decided. I hope that it will at last end well. Lord Hales's letter was very friendly, and very seasonable, but I think his aversion from entails has something in it like superstition. Providence is not counteracted by any means which Providence puts into our power. The continuance and propagation of families makes a great part of the Jewish law, and is by no means prohibited in the Christian institution, though the necessity of it continues no longer. Hereditary tenures are established in all civilized countries, and are accompanied in most with hereditary authority. 
Sir William Temple considers our constitution as defective, that there is not an unalienable estate in land connected with a peerage, and Lord Bacon mentions as a proof that the Turks are barbarians their want of stirps, as he calls them, or hereditary rank. Do not let your mind, when it is freed from the supposed necessity of a rigorous entail, be entangled with contrary objections, and think all entails unlawful, till you have cogent arguments, which I believe you will never find. I am afraid of scruples. I have now sent all Lord Hales's papers. Part I found hidden in a drawer in which I had laid them for security, and had forgotten them. Part of these are written twice. I have returned both the copies. Part I had read before. Be so kind as to return Lord Hales my most respectful thanks for his first volume. His accuracy strikes me with wonder. His narrative is far superior to that of Hainaut, as I formerly mentioned. I am afraid that the trouble which my irregularity and delay has cost him is greater, far greater, than any good that I can do him will ever recompense. But if I have any more copy, I will try to do better. Pray let me know if Mrs. Boswell is friends with me, and pay my respects to Veronica and Euphemia and Alexander. I am, sir, your most humble servant, Sam Johnson, February 15, 1776. Mr. Boswell to Dr. Johnson. Edinburgh, February 20th, 1776. You have illuminated my mind and relieved me from imaginary shackles of conscientious obligation. Were it necessary, I could immediately join in a tale upon the series of airs approved by my father, but it is better not to act too suddenly. Dr. Johnson to Mr. Boswell. Dear Sir, I am glad that what I could think or say has at all contributed to quiet your thoughts. Your resolution not to act till your opinion is confirmed by more deliberation is very just. If you have been scrupulous, do not now be rash. I hope that, as you think more and take opportunities of talking with men intelligent in questions of property, you will be able to free yourself from every difficulty. When I wrote last, I sent, I think, ten packets. Did you receive them all? You must tell Mrs. Boswell that I suspected her to have written without your knowledge, and therefore did not return any answer, lest the clandestine correspondence should have been perniciously discovered. I will write to her soon. I am, dear sir, most affectionately yours, Sam Johnson. February 24th, 1776. Having communicated to Lord Hales what Dr. Johnson wrote concerning the question which perplexed me so much, his lordship wrote to me, your scruples have produced more fruit than I ever expected from them. An excellent dissertation on general principles of morals and law. I wrote to Dr. Johnson on the 20th of February, complaining of melancholy, and expressing a strong desire to be with him, informing him that the ten packets came all safe, that Lord Hales was much obliged to him, and said he had almost wholly removed his scruples against entails. To James Boswell, Esquire. Dear Sir, I have not had your letter half an hour, as you lay so much weight upon my notions I should think it not just to delay my answer. I am very sorry that your melancholy should return, and should be sorry likewise if it could have no relief but from company. My counsel you may have, when you are pleased to require it, but of my company you cannot in the next month have much, for Mr. Thrale will take me to Italy, he says, on the first of April. Let me warn you very earnestly against scruples. I am glad that you are reconciled to your settlement, and think it a great honour to have shaken Lord Hales's opinion of entails. Do
Do not, however, hope wholly to reason away your troubles. Do not feed them with attention, and they will die imperceptibly away. Fix your thoughts upon your business, fill your intervals with company, and sunshine will again break in upon your mind. If you will come to me, you must come very quickly, and even then I know not but we may scour the country together, for I have a mind to see Oxford and Lichfield before I set out on this long journey. To this I can only add that I am, dear sir, your most affectionate humble servant, Sam Johnson, March the 5th, 1776. To the same. Dear sir, very early in April we leave England, and in the beginning of the next week I shall leave London for a short time. Of this I think it necessary to inform you that you may not be disappointed in any of your enterprises. I had not fully resolved to go into the country before this day. Please to make my compliments to Lord Hales, and mention very particularly to Mrs. Boswell my hope that she is reconciled to, sir, your faithful servant, Sam Johnson, March 12, 1776. Above thirty years ago, the heirs of Lord Chancellor Clarendon presented the University of Oxford with a continuation of his history, and such other of his lordship's manuscripts as had not been published, on condition that the profits arising from their publication should be applied to the establishment of a manege in the university. The gift was accepted in full convocation. A person being now recommended to Dr. Johnson as fit to superintend this proposed riding school, he exerted himself with that zeal for which he was remarkable upon every similar occasion. But on inquiry into the matter he found that the scheme was not likely to be soon carried into execution, the profits arising from the Clarendon Press being, from some mismanagement, very scanty. This having been explained to him by a respectable dignitary of the church, who had good means of knowing it, he wrote a letter upon the subject, which at once exhibits his extraordinary precision and acuteness, and his warm attachment to his alma mater. To the Reverend Dr. Wetherell, Master of University College, Oxford. Dear Sir, Few things are more unpleasant than the transaction of business with men who are above knowing or caring what they have to do, such as the trustees for Lord Cornbury's institution will, perhaps, appear when you have read Dr. Blank's letter. The last part of the doctor's letter is of great importance. The complaint which he makes I have heard long ago, and did not know but it was redressed. It is unhappy that a practice so erroneous has not yet been altered, for altered it must be, or our press will be useless, with all its privileges. The booksellers, who, like all other men, have strong prejudices in their own favour, are enough inclined to think the practice of printing and selling books by any but themselves an encroachment on the rights of their fraternity, and have need of stronger inducements to circulate academical publications than those of one another. For, of that mutual cooperation by which the general trade is carried on, the university can bear no part. Of those whom he neither loves nor fears, and from whom he expects no reciprocation of good offices, why should any man promote the interest but for profit? I suppose, with all our scholastic ignorance of mankind, we are still too knowing to expect that the booksellers will erect themselves into patrons, and buy and sell under the influence of a disinterested zeal for the promotion of learning. To the booksellers, if we look for either honour or profit from our press, not only their common profit, but something more must be allowed, and if books printed at Oxford are expected to be rated at a high price, that price must be levied on the public, and paid by the ultimate purchaser, not by the intermediate agents. 
What price shall be set upon the book is, to the booksellers, wholly indifferent, provided that they gain a proportionate profit by negotiating the sale. Why books printed at Oxford should be particularly dear I am, however, unable to find. We pay no rent. We inherit many of our instruments and materials. Lodging and victuals are cheaper than at London, and therefore workmanship ought at least not to be dearer. Our expenses are naturally less than those of booksellers, and, in most cases, communities are content with less profit than individuals. It is perhaps not considered through how many hands a book often passes before it comes into those of the reader, or what part of the profit each hand must retain as a motive for transmitting it to the next. We will call our primary agent in London Mr. Cadell, who receives our books from us, gives them room in his warehouse, and issues them on demand. By him they are sold to Mr. Dilly, a wholesale bookseller, who sends them into the country, and the last seller is the country bookseller. Here are three profits to be paid between the printer and the reader, or, in the style of commerce, between the manufacturer and the consumer, and if any of these profits is too penuriously distributed, the process of commerce is interrupted. We are now come to the practical question, what is to be done? You will tell me, with reason, that I have said nothing, till I declare how much, according to my opinion, of the ultimate price ought to be distributed through the whole succession of sale. The deduction, I am afraid, will appear very great, but let it be considered before it is refused. We must allow, for profit, between thirty and thirty-five per cent, between six and seven shillings in the pound, that is, for every book which cost the last buyer twenty shillings, we must charge Mr. Cadell with something less than fourteen. We must set the copies at fourteen shillings each, and superadd what is called the quarterly book, or, for every hundred books so charged, we must deliver a hundred and four. The profits will then stand thus. Mr. Cadell, who runs no hazard, and gives no credit, will be paid for warehouse-room and attendance by a shilling profit on each book, and his chance of the quarterly book. Mr. Dilly, who buys the book for fifteen shillings, and who will expect the quarterly book if he takes five and twenty, will send it to his country customer at sixteen and six, by which, at the hazard of loss, and the certainty of long credit, he gains the regular profit of ten per cent, which is expected in the wholesale trade. The country bookseller, buying at sixteen and sixpence, and commonly trusting a considerable time, gains but three and sixpence, and if he trusts a year, not much more than two and sixpence, otherwise than as he may perhaps take as long credit as he gives. With less profit than this, and more, you see, he cannot have, the country bookseller cannot live, for his receipts are small, and his debts sometimes bad. Thus, dear sir, I have been incited by Dr. Blank's letter to give you a detail of the circulation of books which, perhaps, every man has not had opportunity of knowing, and which those who know it do not, perhaps, always distinctly consider. I am, etc., Sam Johnson, March the 12th, 1776. End of section 20